In our last part of our Under the Hood series, Zeus and I talked about the past 100 years of modern financial history and the corruption that has led to what we're seeing today. In today's conversation, we're going to be talking about solutions, but we'll make a little pit stop along the way to some situations that are happening today. So welcome back, Zeus. Hi there, Regina. From upstairs. <laughs> From upstairs, yes. Um, okay, so the other night we were watching um, and Democracy Now! had a 10-year-old interview with Jean Le Carré, the famous author um, and of spy novels. Uh, gosh, he's written over 20 of them, and he just passed away recently. And what we found so intriguing about the conversation with him was he was talking about, at that time, his latest novel, which was called something we are... Our kind of traitor. Our kind of traitor. Okay, our kind of traitor. We have to remember this guy was uh, with MI6 and MI5 in England. He was a spy, well-trained in the field and an analyst as well. So he knows of what he speaks. And in this conversation, he said, I'm just talking about what is. There's no embellishment in this novel about the financial systems. Mm -hmm. And you and I were both kind of, we were both recognizing the profundity of what that means. And I'd like you to jump in and make a comment. And then I'll, men I'll bring up uh, in a second here, Catherine Austin Fitz and her take on it in an interview a few years ago. I think what's happened is that it's, the monetary system has been portrayed as the white market and the black market, just as there are white hats and black hats in the conspiracy community. What we're finding more and more is that those two are so intermingled as to be almost indistinguishable. What John Le Carre, his, whose actual name, that's his pen name, his actual name, I believe, is uh, David Cornwell, uh, is uh, talked about the fact that during the 2008 financial collapse, the only thing keeping the entire global economy afloat was black market money to the tune of some three to four hundred billion dollars. So fast forward today and almost no bank. And he also mentioned that in this interview can do business or make the profits that they want or need without huge doses of black market money. We're talking drug trade, we're talking illicit trafficking, we're talking about wherever it comes from. Well, also money laundering, tax fraud, everything that can be embedded in that with yeah. what we call the elite, which I think we need to change that term. But right. and, and by the way, I just wanted to throw in as you continue on this, um, when I interviewed Catherine Austin Fitz, as I men mentioned a moment ago, um, she told me that our economies, our global economies cannot exist without this money laundering and drug trade by the governments. And as we know, our CIA and other countries, intelligence communities have all been involved in these really shady, dark, uh, greedy activities in order to keep their coffers full so that only a few really benefit from it. And I'd like you to kind of continue it from there. Yeah, the innovation that's come of the last 10 years uh, since the 2008 collapse, and I've talked about that in my book, Transforming Economy, was that it's kind of come out in the open. Like we have said in past interviews, it's no longer a conspiracy, it's more of an open business plan. We are yeah. gonna go ahead and all the liabilities are gonna go to you, the taxpayer and the working class. And all the profits are going to come to us, the billionaires and the so-called global elite. And I use that word very advisedly. They're not elite in any way, sure. The lowest of the low in many ways, though they portray themselves as that. In, that, uh, in the book, I noted that 
basically they're just creating counterfeit wealth, you know, and it's just another scam. I mean, there's no gold backing money as we have it right now. Right. And when money is printed, it's printed on the backs of you and me because any extra money that's unbacked, that's printed, dilutes our buying power, as we said in the previous episode. So what better way to continue that than to look into better markets? And black markets are some of the most profitable markets out there. Gambling is extremely legal and illegal. Gambling is extremely profitable. Drugs obviously are. I would say that so-called healthcare industry, which I call the sick care neglect industry, (laughs) or the sick neglect industry, um, is a multi-trillion dollar uh, boondoggle as well. So the whole idea is to extract as much as you can, give as little as you can. You look at the sick neglect system as an example, and it raises premiums to the nth degree, and it tries to refuse any kind of treatment. That's how you maximize your profit. So it's all geared toward a fundamentally immoral and inhumane orientation. And in this episode, you and I have been trying to say, how do you both identify that, but also turn it around? Exactly. um, Absolutely. And we'll get into these. And some of them we've mentioned before, but I think we need to look at them in a deeper way now. Because what's really galling, what is dispiriting... um, I don't know if you ever saw the film by Aaron Russo. I did an interview called America from Freedom to Fascism. Um, But in that film, he has some graphics and he has the money machine turning out with human beings running on these little treadmills, running faster and faster to turn out the money for the big guys in the top hats, you know? And I think what is galling is that these guys do these deals. And this includes our politicians. This is permeating all levels of power these guys do their deals with one another, uh, having governmental access, etc. And they actually celebrate these slimy deals they do on our backs and at our expense. Where a mother who can't feed her kids, who, as they say, kites a check, um, ends up in, in prison if she does this a few times, or if someone who can't make ends meet after the CIA has dumped drugs into their neighborhood, which they did as a program, and now they can't get by, so they have to sell a little bit in order to feed the habit and maybe get some, you know, some bread or whatever. They go to jail. They go to prison, as a matter of fact, for-profit prison. So when you start looking at the immorality of this, there are no words for how heinous this discrepancy is that... The big guys go out and celebrate over champagne, swindling the public, human trafficking, money laundering. They celebrate at fine restaurants, these incredible deals they've just made for themselves, right? right? And we go to prison if we make even the tiniest, have even the tiniest infraction against the law. It really makes me very upset. Well, it is. It's a two-tiered system, but there is a way to fight against it. You know, in the in the... This, in this five-part series I wrote for uh, Charles Smith's Of Two Minds, um, I, one of the articles was, called, uh, articles was called Fighting and Winning Against Big Everything. And the main point in that article, you can just look it up online. If you say fighting and winning against big everything, put my name in, the article will come up. But the, the main point I was making is that they require our agreement and our participation. The most successful and innovative resistance strategy in the last hundred years has been nonviolent civil disobedience. It worked in the organic food market when people refused to, to take 
pesticide-laden foods and, 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 and decided they were going to leave that market, these other guys that were making much money off of it, including the chemical companies, including the, you know, sort of unreasonably ripened and red and insect-free apples that they were selling, all of a sudden they had to change. And that is true across the board. So not to get you know, ourselves too depressed here, we're only identifying these things so that we can effectively understand how they operate so that we can effectively and positively not only resist, but create alternatives. I agree. And what I thought we would do, because we talked about this and did this privately while we were researching, I thought we'd just share the findings. So looking at it, because right now we're in the middle of a lot of political heat, right? And we have been for years, and it's been corrupt for so many years. We detailed a bit of it, a lot of it, actually, in our previous conversation. But we went through the earnings, looked up the net worth of the various top-tier politicians, and you know, it's not surprising. Nancy Pelosi, for a lot of people, they may already know this, um, she and her husband are worth about $120 million. You know, they, they are able to, through high profile and through whatever deals they do, benefit from this. Trump is worth plus or minus one to three billion. Um, he's, he claims that he's worth billions, but then his detractors say he actually owes so much he's in the minus in the billions. So, but a lot of money moving back and forth in his life and into the billions one way or another. Um, Kamala Harris and her husband, $4.5 million after you back out some of their debts. But what was interesting here is Joe Biden was actually worth only $900,000. He was worth under a million dollars until just a couple of years ago in a book deal about the tragedy of the death of his son. So at, kind of tell us how this figures in. At, when we're talking about politicians, uh, we're talking about lobbying, money, special interests, and their own profiting at our expense. Because we need to see this is across the board. This is right. Right. The, the one thing that conspiracy theory just ignores or seems to neglect, and I think is absolutely critical, and maybe the most central point at all of all, is that experience, life experience, determines the framework and values that you hold. These things. Would, would do what I call naturalize. They naturalize certain ways of thinking, certain ideologies. And when you are in Washington or you have $120 million and you've kind of grown up that way or you've been that way for decades, there's no way you can be empathetic, truly empathetic with somebody who is, who is having difficulty getting by in the world. There just simply isn't. You've created a different universe. The cocktail parties and the social circles that you are in are so removed from the actual lived life experience of others. Any kind of empathy you're going to have is going to be abstract empathy. And it's going to pale in comparison to your stronger loyalties, ties, and understandings of life value. I can't tell you how many times in the education that I've been in and so forth, people are saying, well, why don't they just fill in the blank? Right. And then you explain to them they don't just because they don't have the support system, because they can't get that free internship on Washington, on Capitol Hill, because they actually have to make a living and feed their family or feed themselves. They don't have they aren't being bankrolled by an extended family or a circle of people who are giving them connections and giving them money and investing in them and paying for their college and education. And those people just can't get it. They understand maybe intellectually but they'll never really be able to morally and foundationally understand what it's like to struggle. And in so doing, 
they think that anything, any money coming their way is because of their own merit. They think it's because of their own talent. They think it's that's just the way the world works. You know, some people get and some people don't. And they don't look at the unequal playing field and the systemic imbalance uh, where some of the most talented people don't get the chance and some of the most lackluster, mediocre people get promoted. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but I think one was to the presidency itself uh, without any experience in that job. I do not want to hear another argument about affirmative action until somebody gets promoted. That would be Donald Trump, I'll name him, without literally any experience in public office at all. We, if, 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 if a lot of the conservatives had heard this around a person who was of, of, of color being promoted into a position without any kind, of, any kind of experience whatsoever, they would be harping on affirmative action and quotas and so forth. So I think we have to look in a very even-headed way at how to actually acknowledge the hard work that people have, the talent that they have, and the opportunity that they have. And that we are in a situation right now where those aren't being rewarded as promised. No, they're not. So, I mean, here we are at this social strata and economic strata in this world of people who are essentially have power over our lives via legislation, at least not, not in the streets, but via legislation who are really all almost all of them completely out of touch with what the average person is going through on the street. And we've seen this in recent political maneuverings regarding, you know, relief around COVID and so forth. Um, and so this, this is just embarrassing and kind of dirty to watch. So now that bubble is very similar to what we talked about last time, which is the bubble of the stock market. Right. operating in its own universe, having nothing to do with the on-the-ground real economy of the world. So these are the bubbles, the power bubbles, the money bubbles, that essentially mm -hmm. have nothing to do with us, the 7 billion-plus people on the planet. So it, let's take the conversation to us. I would, let's do that. And, but first, let me make a little bit of a somewhat of disclaimer, at least uh, something that goes ahead and informs and. I'm not in the neoliberal. We talked about neoliberals and neoconservatives in the last thing. We are neither one of us in either camp. Okay, you have one camp that uses political correctness, that uses uh, image, right? And images of political correctness to try to forward some notion of, some passive notion of a certain group of elites ruling over you. <laughs> and yeah. then the others using fear and nationalism and sometimes racism to do the same thing. Right. These people are actually coming from the same space. They're not here in, interested in empowering you and me. They're right. interested in finding different regimes to leverage their own. So you're not in, so, you know, before there's any comments whatsoever on Trump versus Pelosi, neither you nor I support either one of them or their programs or their agendas, because both of them are seeking to appraise the wealth, well-being and welfare of a tiny minority of people over and against the welfare broadly, the democratic notion and health of the many. And in my book, I said, here's, I'm a believer in democratic capitalism. Here's how I define that. Democratic capitalism is money serving people rather than people serving money. And if you have an agenda, intended or not, where you're expecting people to serve you and their money to go to you, then you're in corrupt capitalism, yes. period. That's, <laughs> so a, really that's a very metric. simple metric. You don't have to name names as much as just look at what they're doing. 
That is not even motives doesn't work because a lot of times it's unconscious. Look at the effects. True. And as we get into this, we're going to be talking about how we build a humane economy based mm-hmm. on human beings, our right. uniqueness, our talents, our skills, our energy, but build a healthy economy underneath this corrupt economy because this is going to have to be like little shoots of grass. We're going to have to build it ourselves from the bottom up. It's too mm-hmm. corrupt and it will not continue. And you said something um, that I wrote down here which I think is really beautiful. And that is, and I don't know if this is from you or you attribute someone else, but you said the difference, what what the basis of a a humane economy is, is that which liberates versus that which enslaves. And we Mm -hmm. all know the enslavement part of this story. We've been living for hundreds of years. That's beautiful. Exactly. No, I mean, that's just a phrase that came up when we were doing a pre-interview on this because I wanted to summarize all the different aspects of it into sort of one sort of grand notion. And what we see in the financialized economy that's built on debt, debt is simply, you know, the chains. Debt is shackled, you know, and, and, and increasingly putting people into debt has been the go-to strategy for this entire world. In fact, they've gotten us to believe that it's somehow beneficial for us. We're really, it's a, it's, we're being taught that it's a matter of our own dream. Well, not know? only that, you can't technically even have the sought after credit score unless you go into debt. In fact, you can increase your te- the credit score by, by going, going into, into debt and making payments versus paying things off. This is sick. This is really sick. So now let's go into w- the reverse of that and what this is going to take to undo this, because I think it's really a beautiful story. And you and I both agree um, that it has to start with us, first of all, reevaluating ourselves, reevaluating what is a value. And the rest of this conversation is going to be about what is a value? Mm-hmm. How do we reestablish an economy based on value? And we, let's start with the simplest place, which is once we understand this for ourselves, we have to start educating our children in a new way. So they're not growing up to be another cog in the machine. Not growing up thinking they're just going to slip into some governmental job that will be made available to them at a desk somewhere, in a cubicle somewhere. That may not be available when the time comes now. And so how do we begin sharing with our children? And I know you have, and you riff on this, nature, 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 nature. And for me, uh, one of the ways in which you can apply nature and education and, and, you know, conflate them, so to speak, it was something like a Waldorf education for kids, but why not have that model in public schools? So go ahead and riff on both of those, nature and really kind of what that Waldorf model brings to a child who's growing up and goes to school every day, but is also climbing trees and planting wheat and shearing sheep. Right. Well, I think that the thing that both Waldorf and nature itself brings to us is how holism works. And not just sustainability, because I don't really like the word sustainability. No one wants to just sustain their life. They want vitality. Vitality and where does the root force of vitality, life force, spirit, spirituality, okay? So that which increases the life force, and on personal health is an example of that, financial health, 
is an example of that, where money is being invested in the right kinds of things that actually cause things to grow rather than to enslave and diminish either the planet or other people. So that's a basic starting value. And nature does a good job of showing that to us. It provides so much to us without transaction, right? Without insisting on something in return. Just studying that very movement alone, the sun, right? And even with alternative energy, using that sun to generate our own energy. But look at photosynthesis, okay, and chlorophyll. It's taking the energy of the sun, producing life for that plant with an abundance that allows other people to eat that plant and sustain themselves and other animals. That is more the way to look at it. I've, I've done some talks on this, and I said, if you look at nature closely and can parallel this to a healthy economy, you'll notice that nature has three important things. It's got distinctness. That means it's got each and every animal in each and every niche has something very unique and important to offer in the tapestry of things. And in fact, the healthiest ecosystems like the rainforest in, in South America and Brazil have the richest diversity. If you want to have the healthiest, if anything happens to one part of it, it can be easily buffered and surrounded and supported by the rest. Because that distinctness, that niche combined with the second thing, diversity, right? This huge diversity within um, rainforests and other areas and financially, hopefully in your own life, creates a situation or even a diverse portfolio, diverse investment portfolio. Well, if one thing goes down, there's a lot other to surround and support it. Microfinance is another thing that lend to a lot of people in these lending circles. If one person goes bankrupt, the rest can surround to support them. And we talk about community finance and community time banking and time sharing and food sharing to uh, urban gardening and so forth. If someone is hungry, I just saw this the other day on the news. They're now putting these actual little refrigerators in, in local stores and little stands where if somebody's hungry or someone doesn't have basic needs, they can come to these places. Sometimes they're just even on the street and they can get the food right out of the refrigerator. They can get those soaps and whatever they have right there. If we have a community mentality built around distinctness, recognizing the value of each and every person, what I call divine genius, that talent, that spirit that each one of us uniquely offers nowhere else in the universe, and the diversity of people, and then finally the exchange. That's the third mode, where we actually exchange those things. So that's where that nice little example that I just brought forward shows each and every one of those. Each people have distinct needs and distinct talents. There's a diversity of people. They're all supplying those needs from that diversity. And then we have the exchange where those people who have extra, who have some access, end up bringing it and bringing it forward for the people who have not enough. And that provides kind of an understanding, very much backed by the way nature itself does things, to help us gauge what real sustainability and vitality is. You know, for me, I've always had this ideal vision of what our little townships, communities, small cities can look like. And to me, it's all about this incredible, you call it divine genius, um, the skill sets, talents, and desires of human beings. And there's no shortage of that other than being exhausted right now. There's no shortage of that on the planet. There is someone for everything. 
There's someone who loves engineering. There's someone who loves figuring out uh, where a leak in a, in a water line is coming from. There's someone who loves grooming our dogs and baking our pies and breads. And there's every human desire and skill and trade is there. And imagine if we had a community where each person could contribute that thing they actually love doing. We'd have very productive and diverse communities and, and basically happy communities. We don't sadly have in place yet a financial mechanism to essentially loan out and support all that while it gets growing. Um, you can make, maybe make a quick comment on that before I go to the fact that really what we're going to need before all of that is personal financial literacy. So why don't you just take it away on both of those? Well, the first thing is beginning to recognize the nature of the system. We've been trying to help bring that forward. But if you notice certain attributes of it, it is built on a very stark individualism, either just the single consumer or the nuclear family. And usually it's done competitively, right, with others. You're trying to get above. You're trying to keep up with the Joneses or exceed the Joneses. So we have to get understanding that we've been fed this mentality that your worth as an individual and as a family is dependent upon you doing better than others. And of course, social media has only made this worse because then you brag about this meal and you take the picture and you make yourself look like, you know, that you're successful and that you're like happy. You're having the most amazing life ever. Yes. <laughs> it's everyone's and own sizzle reel, they call it. <laughs> exactly. And all that it is, is almost a pathetic attempt, honestly, to prove to yourself as well as others that you're having a happy life when you're kind of living on the outside of your own decision-making process, right? All of these forms of worth are being consumed or bought at the cost of your own dignity, but also the cost of your own money. This is where financial literacy, among other things, and that's why I say the first step is to recognize your own programming and where social value has been placed and to recognize that it's corrupt and to say no to it nonviolent civil disobedience, say, no, I will not contribute to this or that crummy corporation. Right. Well, I will... Go ahead. I would say, depending on a person's age, how long they've been around the planet, where they are in their own financial history, um, the older generations, I think once you start getting to the Xers and certainly to the boomers, we, there are kind of entrenched patterns based on the old economic corrupt model. And people just kind of give it a pass and say, well, I mean, what are you going to do? AT&T, you know, it's always going to make some money or whomever, right? So let's right. talk about that. And I know you had a situation uh, with an acquaintance of yours who was like all progressive on one end, but, right? Yes. I mean, I was, I was, you know, doing some organizing, so social organizing, political organizing around progressive causes, trying to, you know, and trying to support the notion of, of supporting the working class and the people who really create value rather than the rentier class. And um, I learned from this person who was very much uh, along those lines and actually putting her own work, her own hands, she's a retired you know, postal worker, had invested a lot of her retirement money in financial stocks like JP Morgan, et cetera, because her quote financial advisor told her to do that. And I was gobsmacked because I was like, you know, I don't, I mean, I know that it gets you money, but it's exactly contrary to your values. You know, these people are corrupt, you know, and she kind of shrugged her shoulders like, well, what else are you going to do? Right? Yeah, so let's and, talk about it. What else are we going to do? 
Right. And I think this is where we have to have a fairly radical leap of faith. And I don't mean an unpragmatic or like leaping off a cliff here. Okay. Because you and I have done this as well. Begin to actually take a step back from investments and say, is it really my purpose to fund my leisure for the next 20 or 30 years, which is the typical way of doing things, and use what I've called blood diamond companies. <laughs> Those are using bad practices, just like in South Africa was using basic almost slave labor to dig up their diamonds. That's where blood diamond comes from. Dangerous practices and nearly enslaved people. Are we gonna enslave ourselves to JP Morgan and these people in order to get a return, which is a form of blood money or blood diamond, in order to do what? Be leisurely? not to actually contribute to our own growth, our own creativity, our own compassion, and, and to make courageous moves to meet with other people, to, to create common cause or connection with other people to make this world a better place. What we're doing is we're becoming rentiers ourselves. We're using bad morals <laughs> with bad companies to extract a certain kind of rent based in fear that we won't be supported in the future and we can only rely on ourselves and these bad companies to do so. We have to break through that. We have to make, it's not just a leap of faith, it's really a move of faith, a confident walk of faith to begin to say, wait a minute, I have extra money and I'm gonna invest, invest in the future of humanity. You and I invested in this, uh, company that made amazingly uh, realistic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of shocking. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was lox and bagels, you know, that kind of smoked salmon. Yeah. They did it out of carrots, did, had an amazing product, had what mentored by the person from Dea. So we felt that we were using our smarts and intellect because this person was doing a good job, had a good product. And there's a $6 billion industry just from salmon alone, and it could save fish. And what it is, it's vegan salmon. So people who want to have, you know, lox and, and, and you could pass this off really easily at a brunch and people would mm -hmm. hardly know the difference. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of shocking that this woman figured this technology out with mm -hmm. simple ingredients. So yeah, she did that. And we can see there's a trend toward a plant-based diet. It's happening. It's happening certainly in all the Western um, First uh, Nations of the world. Right. You can, again, the metric is, is it going to make the world a better, more vital, sustainable place? Right. We're not. You don't have to. And there are ways. You've been propagandized. Many people have been propagandized to believe the only way you can make money, especially a lot of money, is to do the wrong thing. And you're only going to lose money or, or be spending your time doing volunteer work to do the right thing. That is propaganda. That's a propaganda of the old Talk about system. that for a moment yes. because my father is an old, well, he's 90. He's mm -hmm. old fashioned, super conservative, sits on his computer, sadly, without his glasses sometimes and makes mistakes. <laughs> You know, loves to sit and invest and move his money around in his portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. And you and he had had a talk and you told him, now 
you got to get on this Beyond Meat thing. He said, you know, I've been reading about this Impossible Burger thing. And you said, yeah, it looks pretty good and Beyond Meat and is it their competitor. And you did mm -hmm. the analysis and said, hey, why don't you buy that? Mm -hmm. um, because it looks like it's it moves toward the future. It's right. a growing market. Mm -hmm. So he, he, he really didn't. He just waited and waited, bought all the blue chippers and everything. By the time he got into it, it had tripled. The price had tripled. In a month. In a month. He totally mm -hmm. missed out on that recommendation. And he did this in others as well. So let's talk about, because he didn't, he couldn't make that leap of faith to something that was new. And so he got a modest profit and even a loss in some of his blue chippers. But, you know, he's okay. The point being, he couldn't in his own mind embrace this because he simply kind of too old to really see the emerging the need for these emerging products in an emerging market but right. we're not and we have people in their 20s and 30s that are moving this direction so there those are a couple of things that help the planet in terms of uh, all the environmental factors that are serving an emerging new market of right. plant-based diets but then you have something like southwest airlines for example right. And we're just right. bringing up a few just to kind of yeah. toss them out there. So mm -hmm. let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah, I mean, if you were a strict environmentalist, you'd say don't do planes at all, right. you know, stay local. Um, but, you know, I looked at Southwest and I have the same analysis for these. I said their set point is pretty high because they're a well-run company. And I like the mentality. If anyone's ever rode, you know, Southwest Airlines, they have that kind of funny intro and the people seem genuinely fairly happy to be there. Um, the, the corporate culture is very people friendly. It treats the workers with a degree of respect. Costco is also another um, corporation, lest anyone think we're just anti-corporation, who is doing best practices around treating workers well, supporting them, you know, scholarships, health insurance, and the whole nine yards. So it's possible to be a truly progressive and supportive corporate citizen. I'm not anti all corporations. Southwest is similar in that way. And I was, I also advised your dad on that one. <laughs> and that one doubled about two and a half times. And it was at the very bottom. And I said, I said, Bill, I said, the set point for this well-run company is up here. And it just died down. It's going to make it back up to the set point because they're a well-run company and ethically, I'm okay with supporting them because they actually treat the workers among the best of any airline. And I want to reward companies like that who do that. So it, the old way was if you actually invest in something that's healthy, sustainable, or environmentally, you're going to lose money or not get as high a return. And that's not necessarily true. You probably won't get the stratospheric returns of some of the real shark type of investment, right? But you're gonna get some pretty healthy returns and you're gonna be improving the planet and you're going to be making things more available and healthy for other people. So that, and I didn't, I didn't just go on a lark, I looked and analyzed. What's the vitality and viability of this actual company? How well run is it? Because you don't wanna just throw your, and we did the same thing with the as vegan salmon, was very well done. The whole marketing strategy and everything passed muster. So it's not asking you to be idealistic and just throw your money at something that claims that it's going to be, you know, improving the world, like, like all those tech companies did <laughs> at the turn of the century, but something quite different. 
Yeah, and this is where having some financial literacy comes in. It goes back to doing your homework, um, meeting up maybe online with other groups who are looking to do um, safe and sound investing in ways that are going to enhance our future. Um, they're out there. There, there are groups out there doing this. So that's one way to go. I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. When we're talking about stratospheric, this is something we talked about off camera that is funny. I mean, it's kind of worth bringing up and interesting. Here you have the two supposed wealthiest guys in the world financially. You have Jeff Bezos. What is it? Hundred? I have it written down somewhere. About, 100, about 187 billion dollars for Jeff Bezos. And now, right up alongside him, number two is Elon Musk. Well, <clears throat> what a wild card. He's doing something to, oh, to literally transform an entire industry. One is looking for sheer profit. It's interesting because his, his ex-wife now, he and his wife split up, his ex-wife is now giving away huge amounts of her money to all different kinds of causes. I don't know what Jeff Bezos is doing with his, but we already know all the stories about what it's like to work at Amazon and people cutting people out of their potential to sell and the competition is really quite horrible from the inside. So this is really for money. This is for profit, you know, for may not have started that way, but it is for now. I don't, I mean, he's making, uh, making it possible for us to have convenient ways to purchase, but not really adding a lot of heart and soul to the world. Then you've right. got Elon Musk, who definitely has a hard time with humans, but man, that man's on a mission. <laughs> he is looking to get rid of fossil fuels. And, you know, if you looked at the company itself, the the profits to earning ratio which is supposed to be really low is catastrophically high right i don't really know how this works and i could see him just going bust one day and saying i've done it i'm through he's moved mm -hmm. the entire industry so that gm and ford certainly um i know this has always been a deal in california to go you know try to go with uh, solar and so forth mm -hmm. wind He's moved that entire industry up. So it, within the next two years, GM and Ford are going to have their electric vehicles out in more mass numbers. He personally did this himself to get us off of fossil fuels. It looks reckless. His numbers look reckless, yet he's listed as the second wealthiest man in the world. You just want to talk about the differences in this kind of extreme wealth? <laughs> well, I mean, I... Again, I, I'm not a fan of concentration of wealth. And yeah. those both would be examples of that. And even a person could make the argument that Amazon was as a necessary beast and that if you look on the, uh, on the book site, for instance, they have local booksellers and they have Goodwills and so forth selling their own books on that platform. So everything's a mixed yes. bag to a certain extent. Yeah, I always look at where it's headed. What's motivating it? What's it supporting and where's it headed? And this links financial literacy with critical media literacy and also psychological literacy about your own motives. It's not actually that difficult if, as long as you're not trying to convince yourself or delude yourself or allow yourself to be happily deluded or propagandized, what your motive is, okay? And if you combine that with this literacy, both critical literacy, critical thinking, which would be in particular media literacy and financial literacy, 
you're going to be able to make sound decisions to support people doing good businesses and you're not going to be propagandized into like flowing with the crowd right to one candidate or one company because it's the next newest biggest thing you're going to ask moral questions you're going to ask critical questions you're going to ask financial questions about your own motive the company that you're dealing with and larger questions about whether it supports the kind of world you want to have emerge whether it supports your local community yes you can save a few dollars going to say a home depot which i don't recommend at all we just got amazingly just all a few hardware. miles down <laughs> loomis hardware <laughs> and the prices are yes a few dollars more but all of which they are supporting the fact that they're owned locally the fact that they that they understand the community the fact that their corporates uh, cash isn't being funneled to hedge funds and so forth but staying mostly in the community all of these end up being premiums that give the value much higher to the local market than the few extra dollars you save with this corporate behemoth <laughs> absolutely and what happened was our hardware store in our town closed down six or seven years ago and everyone was devastated and the reason they closed down is because a home depot went in a few miles away and everyone was trying to get it on the cheap well not once that happened people started rethinking it right They're like wait a minute we need a hardware store well we just got rid of it it just closed um and also they'd been on for a long time and you have to take into consideration family-owned businesses people retire but the same thing happened with our local coffee shop. Starbucks went in a mile or two away. The, other, the local coffee shop closed down, both of them in response to large corporations. Now there's this movement here where we are in the foothills of California of all these privately owned businesses springing back up. Little cafes and coffee shops privately owned, even in these times, are opening to serve the local population who is demanding this who wants this once again so something's happening in our mass internal mindset that we're desiring local again so let's talk about that in terms of regionalization in terms of um farmers markets etc and what supporting that starts doing to the our larger economic profile yeah if you notice the habit that was created by the corporatized corporate takeover, not only of, of the business world, but also of our own community spaces and even our metaphysical spaces. They were selling this notion of competition, individualization over and against others, fragmentation. You can only make money if you're very specialized and hopefully you'll be in a high paying specialized job. It goes on and on and on. And quantity over quality yeah quantity of goods becomes that which is value and not the quality of life even you look at things like terms like standard of living means how much money you have versus quality of life means how deep and satisfying fulfilling your life is and that's what we're making from that quantity to quality you know uh, there is there are so many instances of that where you get to see you know um human capital a term I hate, right? where you're treating people literally as transactional pegs and cogs, and you're just churning them in and churning them out due to some job description or some need of some overarching megalith versus what I call relationship capital, where literally the 
there's a currency and an exchange just in feeling good to help one another and creating community structures that help to support that. You know, we've talked about things like local currency. We'll, we'll go into more depth in these later. Peer-to-peer -peer lending. We also had time banking where we literally trade time on each other. You and I talked about gifting money. One of the most direct things you can do when you have excess of money is find someone, right? Or invest in them not only into their business like we have, but also invest in just getting their life or being able to spend some time uh, researching and developing a business or the talent that they have, which they can't do when they've got these two jobs just to make ends meet. So that's another way of investing. And, and there's another another side of that, and that is debt. And because we are so many people are in debt, debt and debt forgiveness. And when we were chatting about this privately, you said that's even in that's so <laughs> basic. It's in the it's in the Lord's prayer, the Christian Lord's prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I used to have to say that in Sunday school every mm -hmm. single week, right? But we don't mm -hmm. ever think about this. So right. what? mean in common terms let's let's take it down to you're a 30 year old uh, single person or couple maybe right. you have a ch child or two okay now first of all the boomer generation right now appears to be the last one that has this kind of some inherited wealth still to pass on to their children and then what happens you know, our world is different now. The world that created my father's generation's wealth that some passed down to us, some didn't. I mean, a lot of it was dissipated. Um, and then from our generation down to people in their 20s and their 30s now, it's, it's kind of descending. Right. So say you're a young couple, say you have a job, at, someone has a job as a clerk at Trader Joe's and someone mm -hmm. else is doing some online consultation of some kind and you've got a couple kids and you're making the rent and mm -hmm. there is no inheritance. Where do we go to build the healthiest possible life from there? What are our greatest assets? And I know you're going to say each other, and that's true. But well, it is. And the fact is, you know, we, we need to expand what, you know, is, is happening now in nuclear families. Your sister is supporting, um, you know, her, 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 her daughter, Alex, in developing her flower business, which is an aspect of her divine genius. Right. And her son in going back to school to get a, an engineering degree after right. kind of making having a bust in the restaurant industry right. as a trained chef because oh, the, the restaurants are closed. Yeah. So right. she's supporting both her kids in right. really meaningful ways. There's an interesting experiment in San Francisco, which is having you not pay tuition, but giving a certain amount of the money that you make as a result of their value added education. And if they don't do a good job, then you won't make a lot of money and they don't get the return. So I think of that as a kind of unique, practical example of investing in people specifically, and they don't have to pay tuition, which is a huge cost for most people that they're paying on for decades. And they're willing to actually pay that back and, and pay it forward to a certain extent into the production productivity that you have and then part of that productivity then put back into the system to create more opportunities for others as well as to sustain the business itself the educational institution itself innovations like that are are poking into the future you know and I, what i love about that example is it says listen i'm not going to charge for something worthless 
I have faith that this thing works, and if it doesn't work, then you don't have to pay, right? And on the other hand, it's taking out a huge expense and using that faith to, to motivate a development and ex expansion of talent of your own divine genius and developing that in ways that will take those tools and actually produce value in the world. You know, part of it's monetary or financial value, which you use to help pay back. Um, but it's a forward leaning and looking. Now, look what happens with actual debt. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. You're so, paying forward to be put into debt. Right. To be put right. under a rock rather than being shoved or pushed forward by people having faith in your future and your talent. Right. So, and, in, in essence, when we're talking about this young couple right. and they're each working, and now right. if you have a more complex community, you have people in that community who love children and yep. who offer daycare, for example, yes. at a rate that you can all afford and work with mm -hmm. together. So it really, the whole thing, the whole notion that it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village for people to thrive. It doesn't, not just children, for all right. of humanity now, it's really going to take us truly developing our professional, social, our networks in our own life on the ground so that we can help one another prosper through this, these coming times. It's not going to be an easy time ahead. Anyone who says that, you know, that once the pandemic's over, um, it's, a, it's a party again, that's not accurate. So we do need to be thinking about these things. You mentioned media literacy. We've talked about really thinking through our investments so it sustains the future. We've talked about financial literacy, educating our children to understand um, the, the nature of nature right. um, and how not just diversity but also collaboration is how nature thrives and how we as people will thrive. And we've just been cut off from all of that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I would add to that character and virtue education. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Going back to the basic virtues. I mean, and this cuts across uh, traditions. I mean, I consider myself part old school conservative, part old school liberal, and part what I call new school progressive. I like the creativity of the progressive aspect. I like the caring or compassion of the old school liberal, right? And I, and I, and I really like uh, the courage to a certain degree and the wisdom that's involved in tradition in old, old school conservatism. And it's usually old school conservatives that says we need to conserve the wisdom and the best virtues, which we've been losing touch with. My, like I said, my favorite are courage, compassion, and creativity. You bring those forward, and those are actually cultivated, cultivated skills and personal attributes, character attributes that I think are absolutely going to be necessary. And you can be from different religions, conservative or liberal, but I think we can all agree on virtues and calling out the vices, not in a judgmental way or not in a way that's politically correct or virtue signaling or cancel culture. You and I just can't stand that stuff, okay? But in a way that says, that says these stand in the way. The primary ones I'm are- I'm not supporting you anymore. Simply, yes. I'm withdrawing my support from those things which we consider to be damaging and usurious. Right, and, 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 and motivated by greed, opportunism, yeah. fear, ignorance. They're not that difficult to identify. Right. You're not, <laughs> just right. take a look at them. Don't make excuses for them. And then support local business, and then support schooling, and support interactions and connections that require the best of us rather than the worst of us. I agree. And also just on a daily basis, 
literally one event one day at a time, not looking at life itself as so transactional. And we're all guilty of this. Mm -hmm. We'll go to the grocery store and it's on the list. We're in a hurry. We just want to get our stuff, get out. You know, ideally we'll just do self-check now so we don't even have to involve ourselves with another human being. That needs to be rethought. Right. I mean, even if we're going to order a, a cup of coffee at our local coffee shop, that's a person over there. That's their job. They're there to serve you and help you and have, help you have a good experience. Why don't we start investing in just even the smallest and, and shortest of relationships we have on a daily level, just mm -hmm. to look someone in the eye, say, how's it going? And, and have a little chat with them. It's the beginning of breaking this transactional trance that we've been in for so long now, where we're so overwhelmed, we're in such a hurry, we don't even see each other anymore. And I think just starting these small little acts of connection and then starting to educate ourselves and think through what we're involved in, where we want to put our energy, where we want our kids to put uh, their energy and how we want them to grow and thrive in the world. These are all one decision at a time. I couldn't agree more. I mean, this gift of COVID-19, and it has been a gift. I, it has been a very much a struggle. I'm not saying it's all a gift, <laughs> but the, the way it's impelled us to step back from all this mindless activity and reflect upon our own lives and to begin to rest a little bit and to acknowledge that the frontline workers are these poorly paid people who are putting themselves at risk to get us to be food and our necessities, all of a sudden we are becoming aware where before we were not, where we relaxing before where we kept on an endless escalation of activity. That endless escalation of activity is creating and accelerating an unsustainable world. Right. And now we're finding what we really need and what we don't need. And this is moving us in a healthier direction. I think so. And yes. And, and even we brought it up and didn't go into it much. I mean, certainly I think we're hoping that on a governmental level, there's going to be some kind of debt forgiveness program, such as uh, college debt, you know, right. for example, college loans. But on a personal level where families are more practical, you've got to teach your kids how to be responsible, et cetera. And all of this is good. Self-responsibility is a good thing, but when you're in a real bind and people are doing their best, there's a time at which you say, you know, I'm not going to make you alone as my brother or my son. I'm just going to help you out. I can share right. a little bit and become just a little bit more sharing with each yeah. other. This is this American notion. You have to do it on your own. A lot of times families will loan to one another when they can perfectly afford to say, let me gift this to you. Right. right. And this is one of the myths that I want to explode, that somehow if you're not forced to survive or right. forced to dwell under some huge burden, that you just sit around, you know, soaking up the rays of sun and wanting to do nothing. That's that that is a myth. People want to engage. They don't want to engage in a fragmented thing that has nothing to do with their joys or their talents. OK which they've been forced to do, like a, like a poor little kid being dragged to church to hear some Latin mass <laughs> that has nothing to do with them. You know, it doesn't mean that the kid hates religion any more than people hate to work or hate school. 
It's not relevant to their lives. It, it's not intriguing or interesting. It doesn't teach them lessons that help them engage and go around the world. When you cre create these opportunities like they do in progressive education or Waldorf education, where you actually get out into the world, where you actually study, where you actually build things, all of a sudden, that problem of discipline around learning goes away because now it's compelling and it's connected. And we can do that in every phase of our life, including debt forgiveness. Let's explode this notion that somehow everyone's going to be lazy. Now, if you're a pampered, entitled person and people throw money at you, it's not going to be a good thing, right? But that's not what's happening here. We are dwelling under this illusion that somehow, and, and, and even with one of my other clients that I'm helping with develop uh, some inroads in the hospitality industry, he said, basically, what if we had like universal basic income where everyone got a certain minimum amount here? And that's, you know, one of these ideas that have been thrown out there. What would make people want to come to work? And I said, that's a great question. Now, all of a sudden, you have to create a management structure that actually supports people instead of belittles them and just tries to extract out of them, right? <laughs> extract another hour and pay them as little as possible while doing it. Now you're turning the turning the head on debt. You're turning the head on abuse and exploitation. You're turning head on competition and moving it toward collaboration, moving it from how much dollars can I rack up quantity-wise to how much life experience and joy I can rack up quality-wise. So we're moving through this massive shift. And it's the same as the, what, the, what I put on one of these other things that, that, uh, on Gaia News was a shift from the from the more material to the more non-material, right? And from uh, thing value in ownership to use value and stewardship. And the example that I gave for them was, think of Spotify. You don't actually own the CDs, right? And even you have a service that helps give algorithms about the kinds of songs you like and provide suggestions for others. So now you've ex actually expanded your ability to experience the music and learn new bands, right? Without hold, holding tight to the one favorite band or the two favorite bands that you have, you still have access to those. But I love Spotify for everything yeah, you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so you, but you don't have the physical things and that's also good because you don't have all those things littered around, right? Oh, where's that CD? I, yeah. dang it. You know, I thought I put it here, you know? So now you have better access, you have a better selection, better diversity, more distinct genres and artists that you never knew before and more exchange. So yeah. those three things I was saying, distinctness, diversity, and exchange are being typified here. And it's non-material, not material. Of course, there's some basic underlying material aspects. You know, you have to have something to, to view it on or see it on. But for the most part, it's from the cloud. It's more experience. It's more um, evanescent. It's more, it's more change-oriented. It's not so hidebound anymore. And I think that, that is, that's gonna to continue to accelerate throughout our economy, throughout, the, uh, throughout media and throughout all these other areas. And frankly, oddly enough, it's getting us back to community because if you look at community, that is a feeling as well. That's actual relationship. It's the feeling you get from, in our case, giving some oranges to the neighbors and having them appreciate that. You know, it's the feeling of being able to do Habitat for Humanity and help some build a house for someone who doesn't have one. There's this 
sense of life force and connection that starts to come out that's very real. It's not altruism. It's an actual value that's being produced, a spiritual energy that's being produced. And that I think I'm hoping <laughs> that this COVID and that this reflection and refraction that we've had is beginning to open our minds and our beings to what really gives rise to real value, which is in the end, our spirit. Indeed. So as we started out saying that a real economy, the real economy of the future must be based on a humane economy where people are thriving, where people are wanting to contribute, where they're joyful to contribute. And uh, I, I love everything you had to say. And, and I think this is, rather than a how-to type of talk, it's really more philosophical in nature because all of these things are up for us to review and decide how we're going to put our energy behind any one of these areas, whether it's reviewing a portfolio and saying, how can I make this healthier and how can I make this support the future down to how do I want my kids to experience their lives and, and raise them to have their own unique set of values um, to collaborating within community. You know, this, all of these things are up for review now. And I think everything you said um, has a great amount of value in it. And I'd just like to leave people with the notion, it's just time to sit down and rethink how we want to interface with the world and how we want our, whatever assets we have to interface with the world in the future. So final comments from you, Zeus. I don't have a lot except just to encourage your audience to trust themselves. My favorite motto in all my classes and has been for decades is that trust yourself at that deepest, most powerful level. You've had societies and we're coming out of an industrial revolution, which I call the second dark ages, by the way, that have tried to mechanize you and transactionalize you into essentially a robot that just supplies things for other people and gets a little bit of oil in the form of money or wage back. It's time to break out of this. It's time to rebel and be what I call a positive subversive, right? A positive rebel <laughs> toward life force toward trusting the, that, that spiritual and that genius, that divine genius you have and understanding it's your true fount of value and it's the best gift you can give somebody else. So if you have a little extra money and you can share it, as you said, Regina, share it. But the most important thing is to share that part of yourself and develop that and invest in that and, and find coaching and find opportunities to even if there's small artistic opportunities to express that in some way, if we let that energy start pouring out of people and we, and we, and we throw aside the fear, and we throw aside the ignorance and the greed and the opportunism, we are going to come up with the most inventive, practical, amazing things that we're going to enter into this world. So let's just go there. <laughs> I, I agree. We're an incredibly creative species and we have a, trend, a tremendous amount of desire for unique expression. I mean, this could be the most amazing planet in the universe in terms of diversity and creativity and expression on all levels. So I agree with you. Why not start opening it up? Even if it means opening just small channels in ourselves to maybe play with something a little creative instead of just binging on a Netflix series. I do both. <laughs> and I will make, a, I will make uh, along those lines, a, a little bit of a shout out to uh, our neighborhood Earth. Our neighborhood.earth is this community that was started to help expand and develop what we're doing here in these videos and so forth. And I would encourage you to go ahead and look into that and join up. If it, we're trying to create that kind 
of currency, that kind of interchange on that community. Yes, and thank you for bringing that up. I always mm -hmm. forget to, and the fact is, it's been amazing. I'm just amazed to see some of the people that show up. Like, uh -huh. no, this is this is how we need to go about it. You post something on the bees, someone says, I've been a farmer for years and I have invested myself in entomology, I'm educated, I understand how bees operate, how pests operate, I have a natural pest control company. Um, this is just one person from mm -hmm. every kind of person is on uh, in this neighborhood offering their skills and expertise it's just amazing so thank you for bringing it up zeus so thank you again zeus until part three of under the hood we'll say goodbye for now okay <laughs> so everybody again uh you can wa watch part one you can watch part two and this is part 2.5 you've just seen, and then we'll have part three of Under the Hood, uh, which will really focus on us and our personal well-being and health in, in the next one. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com. <laughs>